the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. Hello, everyone. We are continuing our serial killer summer. And uh, once again, prefacing everything, every episode with uh, letting you know we're not turning into a true crime podcast, <laughs> even though we love true crime. Um, but we were uh, very um, inspired. We did. We went to this true crime seminar. I guess it was like, not a seminar, but like a like a, a talk. Like a talk, you yeah. know, about serial killers. We do have a mutual interest and love of true crime and a fascination with serial killers. And so we decided we were going to do a serial killer summer. We did seven last month. We're going to close this thing out with American Psycho, which we've both been really excited to do for the podcast. And I'm happy that we stayed this route with movies that are entertaining about serial killers. I mean, the whole stuff that happened with the Dahmer show. Like I, I found that super interesting on Netflix, but man, did that just explode with a show about something that was actually real that happened. And with Seven and American Psycho, they're two polar opposite type of serial killer films. So I'm really glad that we went with these two. Yeah, me too. Um, because the, you know, Seven's more on the procedural side and we're looking more from the, the cop's perspective. Mm-hmm. And then this movie is more about the killer's perspective. And then also, I think, isn't like hitting you over the head with the psychology of a serial killer, but it's certainly there, you know, and certainly like the idea of like someone with a mental illness and who is trying to fit in. We'll get into all that, but I think this movie really shapes that well. There's been a lot of controversy about this movie, a lot of misunderstanding about this movie. I saw this movie when it came out originally. And I, this is a movie I did not like when it came out. Is that right? I did not like it. Wow. I've been waiting. I didn't want to tell you this right off, but wow. when this movie came out, I wasn't a fan and watching it now is so much different. And I really appreciate this movie. I really think it has like a unique look into the idea of a serial killer. I also think the way that it's filmed and the way that they present the eighties in this movie is like the yuppie subculture in this particular time in New York feels authentic to me I wasn't there and I don't know anything about going into like a high-end restaurant where you know everybody's dressed in like suits and dressed in black and like you know trying to play a particular part and fit in but it feels real in this movie it feels like you know this movie definitely feels satirical but at the same time I think feels real yeah, the authenticity of the time period, when you've got the writer, Brett Easton Ellis, who did know this world, and Mary Heron, who was very plugged into this world at the time, too, who's the director and co-writer of the screenplay, of course, it's uh, going to feel authentic. So I love that aspect of it. For me, when I saw this movie, I was, I guess, 18 or so. It appealed to me on, I didn't know what I thought of the ending either. I can't wait to talk about the ending too. And also can't wait to hear what you listeners think of the ending. And we're going to get down to what the filmmakers, what their intentions were of the ending too. But when I saw this when I was 18, it hit on something that I had only really experienced in John Waters films, which was uh, laughing at things that were inappropriate or when you laugh at something that you're like, oh my God, am I am I supposed to be laughing at this? This is funny, right? 
And experiencing that in this movie um, at such a young age and now looking back on it, it's uh, even better than what I what I felt then. I'm sure the themes of this movie are just going to be sprinkled all throughout. I can't wait to talk about how this movie um, ended up in the writing process, the original casting, and um, it's yeah, pretty controversial beginning with the book and uh, getting the ball rolling, and I'm sure we're going to hit on some of the music too. Yeah. Now, like we did with our last episode, uh, we're keeping our picks of the week uh, serial killer themed, either based off of a serial killer or there's a serial killer in the movie as best as we can. Uh, this uh, episode, I chose to go with a William Friedkin movie. He recently passed away. Uh, I chose one of his lesser known movies, and that is Rampage. I can't wait to hear you talk about this one. Everything I've never seen it, but... Uh... Michael Bean, one of our favorites on this podcast, is in this, right? That is correct. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about this. And listeners, if you are a William Friedkin fan, this coming December, we'll not only be celebrating William Friedkin, but also the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist. A perfect Christmas movie. I mean, it's what my family gathers around the fireplace every year and watches. If you're fans of his, uh, you're checking out his movies. Um, One of my favorites of his that I did as a pick of the week in a prior episode was To Live and Die in L.A., which I rewatched again the other night, and it's just absolutely fantastic. If there was one movie of his that I would tell people to track down and check out if they haven't seen, that's uh, To Live and Die in L.A. Well, I can't wait to talk more about him in the Exorcist episode and to hear about Rampage. My pick of the week is not by William Freakin. I feel a little bit like I should have, but I mean, rest in peace, William Freakin. We love you. My pick of the week this time around is from um, a filmmaker who's not so much making films anymore, but he made one that is very near and dear to my heart called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. If you listen to this podcast, I've brought it up at least 87 times. But this movie is called Deranged from 1974. I'd never seen it before. And, you know, there's so many options out there for serial killer films. And I thought, "Uh, okay, I don't know, deranged. I mean, it kind of, okay, let's try this. And then finding out it has a Home Alone connection. I mean, you guys, your your minds might be a little blown by this. I love your love of Alan Ormsby. And I look forward to hearing about deranged. I love that Alan Ormsby has said my name on a commentary for Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Yeah, you do. Your name does make an appearance on there. I think I was the only one that submitted over seven questions, and they were like, who is this psycho who loves this movie? They were great questions. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment, but before we get into our first clip from American Psycho, Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit about what this movie's about, your interpretation in your own words? Well, set in the heart of New York City, circa 1987, amidst the backdrop of excess, drugs, sex, nightclubs, high-class restaurants, and fancy business cards that'll make a man shed panic sweats, is Patrick Bateman, a young executive who's more consumed with image than anything of substance. Bateman maneuvers through his so-called life with a mask protecting his true nature underneath, that of a psychopath who's teetering on the edge of a complete break from reality. He imagines all day what he does at night, living out fantasies of petty, unnecessary revenge spawned from jealousy or murdering women for sport or the occasional person he thinks is disposable. This absurdist horror comedy of manners is ridiculous in nature, exposing the cruelty of class, fragile masculinity, greed culture, vanity, all fueled by the need to consume. The arrogance of Patrick Bateman might be frightening if he weren't such a pathetic excuse for a human being, 
But nevertheless, his bloodlust cannot be quelled, and this story peels back the facade of the dorkiest serial killer of modern times. It's totally true. Like, he does yeah. come off, like, so dorky in this at times, and his excuses for things are ridiculous. So we'll go to a clip. We'll come back. We'll get into American Psycho. Is that a gram? New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. <laughs> that is really super. How do nitwit like you get so tasteful? <laughs> I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait. You ain't seen nothing. Raised lettering, pale nimbus, white. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Look at that subtle off-white coloring. The tasteful thickness of it. Oh my god. It even has a watermark. Something wrong? Patrick? You're sweating. Now to kick things off, I didn't want to linger too long on the the book itself because we, you know, we want to get into the making of the movie. But it did start from source material. It was adapted from a novel and we've talked about several movies that were adapted from novels and a great read on it from a book is doesn't always translate well to the screen. And this was a particular book where even the author himself said, this book is unfilmable. This isn't something that's going to translate well, especially because a lot of it is from the perspective of the main character's own thoughts and head without doing wall-to-wall narration. And Brett Easton Ellis wasn't a stranger to having his works adapted. His novel Lesson Zero was made into a film in the 80s starring Andrew McCarthy, Jamie Gertz, and Robert Downey Jr. To some success, American Psycho was his third novel released in 1991. He also wrote a novel called The Rules of Attraction, which had a connection to American Psycho and became a film adaptation a little bit after the release and success of American Psycho. It was a very controversial book. It was successful, but a lot of people, I I remember even when I first heard that it was going to be adapted, I hadn't read the novel. And I think a couple people when I was in college flat out said like, yeah, don't read this book. You you don't want to read it. It's, it's, it's awful, you know, not awful necessarily. Like it's a bad read, but because the character is so disgusting. Even before it came out, there was a problem. Um, A month before it was due to be released because of the bad press. And Simon & Schuster, who, you know, had the right, who were putting out the book, um, they actually dropped Brett Easton Ellis and uh, they pulled the book a month before it was due to be put out because of all of this bad press that people were getting death threats. Um, There were protests. A lot of feminist groups were very anti this book coming out and early reviews were saying it was basically a how-to novel on how to 
torture and dismember women. So that's not going to be something that's going to sell your book. But Random House did pick up American Psycho and it found its way to the market. Now, it doesn't mean that the bad press didn't continue. For the most part, though, it was successful. I think it picked up like 250,000 copies very quickly. So bad hype or not, the book was doing well. Brett Easton Ellis, he's a white guy from upper middle class. You know, I mean, say what you want about that, you know, kind of a uh, uh, vein of of people not really being able to think outside of, of who they are. He said that the intention behind this book came from his own feelings of isolation and feeling alienated and then also being consumed by consumerism and he felt like he was losing himself. So American Psycho was born out of his own feeling of losing himself. It wasn't even to demonize yuppie culture at all. And I think what couldn't be conveyed in the book or what people were missing from the book does come out in the film. And I mean, that's definitely thanks to Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner, who did the screenplay. They were able to siphon out all of the satirical uh, content and everything that was being said. And I mean, when you're given visuals, instead of letting your mind just wander, that is going to help explain the story a lot better. I think that while it was a complete coincidence, it was maybe the smartest thing ever that this movie was in the hands of two women. Yeah, I think especially as far as like heavy in the controversy hit for a second time. Yeah. It's wild because I think a lot of people are surprised to find out that a woman wrote and directed this movie. Mm -hmm. And once you, you know, and listening to their commentaries, but there's uh, multiple commentaries, one with uh, Mary Heron, the co-writer, director, and then one with Guinevere Turner, who appears in the film and also co-wrote it. Their perspective rings throughout the film and like, I suggest anybody who loves this movie to check out these commentaries because they're really, really interesting. And they're, it's not just a play-by-play of like making the movie. Uh, there's a lot of perspective and a lot of them really trying to communicate a specific idea about who Bateman was, what his identity was, and then what surrounded the, you know, this like 1980s rich version of yeah. like living in New York and like being successful. And then also, again, trying to emulate this idea of like I'm you know if there's a group of three people I'm like top dog or whatever you know this Mm -hmm. competitiveness this obsession to go to this restaurant that's just a building with chairs and tables and you know food that you could probably get at five other restaurants but it's a constant joke in this movie of like everyone's obsessed with like getting a reservation there and they're like booked out eight months in advance and it's like why well just because it's a thing you know what i mean yeah. that no one even says like what's so great about it is it does it have the best food no one really like says why they're so obsessed no with one's going even there eating yeah food no no in this yeah movie. it's just it's just it, but it's absurd and i think again mary heron and guinevere turner did a really great job of like bringing that out in the film in a very short span of time you get the idea you get the sense of like okay this is a put on they're making fun of this world they were able to see the humor in the book and i think it was in some instances gwen turner was a little put off by by the material initially it was like anything that's like kind of violent or horrific was not really her bag but she did see what mary heron like why she said, what do you think about doing the screenplay with me? She saw what could be so entertaining about uh, making this film into, into not even their vision, like bringing out what made the book so special. And um, I, I think when you have the ability to see what is lost on so many people as far as 
this book goes and being able to put it right in your face, like you said, in a short span of time, you're, I mean, you're controlling it. And I think what makes the movie more accessible than the book. But both Mary Heron and Gwen Turner were not first on the list by far uh, to adapt American Psycho. So the two producers um, who had this idea to do American Psycho in the beginning, um, Ed Pressman and Chris Henley, it started about in 1992, and they acquired the book rights of 1992-93. And the idea, just like the book coming out, it being adapted into a film, or the interest even in adapting it into a film, didn't fall on uh, a lot of a lot of hope out there that this was something that was could be filmable. Like we said already, Brett Ellis didn't think that something like this would be possible. And early versions of this. Uh, first did go to Brett Ellis, who did a version, but they thought this is just too graphic. It's potentially offensive. And even Brett Ellis said he was so over what had happened with the book and had just spent so much time with it that it was almost like the script that he came up with was just not that it was bad or anything. It was just he was over it. He was just done. I think the original script ended with a musical number with... Patrick Bateman and it sounds the I heard Guinevere Turner describe it and it sounds very comical but just that Patrick Bateman like lost his shit pretty much at the very end which he does but just executed in a different way but um Brett Ellis had just he was over it um so his version was out there and the producers didn't think that it was going to fly so they went to a Canadian screenwriter Norman Sandler and then another American Rob Weiss Um, I don't even think his version turned out, Um, but this is about 95, so the wheels are still going with this film. They have versions of this script, but just nothing is really coming that's going to be filmable. And producer Ed Pressman does try to get distribution rights, um, going to Cannes in 96, and what he has is just no one's buying what he's selling, basically. Coincidentally, at the 96 Cannes Film Festival, the other producer, Chris Henley, happens to see I Shot Andy Warhol, which was Mary Heron's debut film, and talks to his wife and says, I just saw this really incredible film by this director I've never heard of about a woman that tried to kill Andy Warhol, and says he was really bowled over by it. And his wife says, you know, you're looking for a director right now. Why don't you try? Why don't you try her? Give Mary Heron a call. It is kind of nuts that in the end they would go with a director that wasn't, you know, high on on lists, especially in '96. Originally, like an early development of American Psycho, Johnny Depp had gotten wind about this movie and wanted to be on board for it. Wanted to star in it as Patrick Bateman. Had this grand vision of it being like X-rated, shot in black and white, and sticking really close to the book, like being being graphic. I don't think that would have worked. <laughs> um, but he, one director that I, I kind of would have been interested to see this, but Johnny Depp wanted, he loved Reanimator, which we've done Reanimator in this podcast. And the director of that was Stuart Gordon. And he threw Stuart Gordon's name in the ring. The studio wasn't very enthusiastic about Stuart Gordon. So they threw out other big names. The first contender that was thought about was David Cronenberg. He got the script and I guess ripped it apart and wanted all of these rewrites, which sounds very Cronenberg. And Brett Ellis, all of the uh, changes that he wanted, he was just like, well, this isn't, this isn't the same movie if that's what you want to do and I won't do it because it's not, it's not even the script that I want. So Cronenberg sounded like it 
started and then just immediately kind of stopped. Brian De Palma, they went to him and Oliver Stone. He was another name that came up. But in the end, it came down to Mary Heron and they contacted her and Mary Heron had actually already read this book and thought the same thing as Brett Ellis, that it was it was something that she didn't really see it being a film or that it wasn't necessarily unfilmable, but she didn't really see how it was going to happen. But when she started talking to Ed Pressman, the producer about it, and Ellis, she understood the very dark black comedy and like high social commentary of uh, wealthy 80s culture, which is what was lost on a lot of people. And the the comedy aspect, um, I mean, not this, this movie isn't a knee slapper when you say comedy. She saw what was in Ellis's book that so many people had missed and what was part of the controversy. And like I said before, the idea of having a woman involved in this is extremely ironic that you would put a woman in charge of this, but it makes total sense, especially when she gets the point of the movie. I can't even imagine how excessive the movie would have been if Oliver Stone had directed it. It just would have been completely unnecessary. We'll, yeah. we'll bring it back to Oliver yeah. Stone, too. <laughs> so we'll move into talking more about Mary Heron and her developing this movie. I did want to stop and say that if you haven't seen her debut, I Shot Andy Warhol, we did an episode on it. And that's a movie that we both really, really love mm-hmm. and we think is a fantastic and fascinating movie. And if you haven't seen it or heard of it, please track it down, um, check it out, and please do check out our episode on I Shot Andy Warhol. You know, I don't want to get backtrack and get into that movie, but, you know, you said it best, that, that she was able to humanize someone who's sort of a despicable character on the page, but she was able to make a character who's unlikable and that you're going to judge really, really harshly. Uh, sympathetic and someone that you could kind of try to understand where they're coming from. Um, Someone who also has a lot of mental illness in the same vein, how Patrick Bateman's character, there's a little nuance there about him taking pills. And, you know, you see that he's clearly has some issues going on with his mind. They don't go into it necessarily into the film, but it's there. There's an essence there. And I think she did a good job of handling that as well as in I Shot Andy Warhol. Yeah, I love that movie. I could sing its praises all night long. So with Mary Heron showing interest, she says to the producers, I will direct it, but I want to write it too. And at the same time, in 96, she had been working with her writing partner, Guinevere Turner, on uh, developing what would later on become uh, the film The Notorious Betty Page. Um, But that script had just kind of been stalling out, and they, I think Gwen Turner said something like, they were stuck and they were broke. And Heron comes to her and says, hey, what do you think about taking a break? We have this opportunity to write this, but I want you to read the book and keep an open mind basically saying I know that you're going to have a problem with the book but go with it and like I already said Turner wasn't the biggest fan of it but she saw what made it special and felt that they could make it super subversive and elevate um, the undercurrent in the story to have a feminist angle but with um, doing this they did feel a lot of pressure knowing that this book was coming from a lot of controversy. It was already building even more controversy with people knowing that it was going to be made into a film. But they did want to meet with Brett Easton Ellis before proceeding on uh, to make sure that everybody was on the same page. And especially Turner, she wanted to say, yo, like, how could you write like something as violent and, you know, 
as insane as this book. And he said that he was shocked by the feminist backlash that came from it because he said he thought he wrote a feminist book. I don't know about that, but I don't think he set out to write something as negative as the way that people were taking it. He really did want to show how awful men could be to women. And both Heron and Turner never took um, his book to be something that was glorifying what was happening. Ellis was pointing out that everything that was happening was bad, how it was and what was contributing to making everyone involved such a terrible, wretched person, and specifically Patrick Bateman. You bring up a good point. It is sometimes, I think, hard to make a movie about something that a particular group of people know is already bad. You know, like women were like, yeah, we get it. We know how bad men are. We don't need a movie to to justify it or show it. In the same way, I think, you know, if, if anyone's approaching like the Holocaust to make a movie or like Vietnam, anything that we know is like war is terrible, like I don't need to see graphic bodies blowing up. It's like, I know war is bad, but there is a way I think that you can get into that territory and those topics with film and books and find different, you know, perspectives, you know, not just a straightforward black and white version of something of like war is bad or people are evil. The movie itself, like is trying, you know, they tried really hard and I think succeeded in a lot of ways of like being able to entertain, but also at the same time, show some satire and show some reflection on it, not necessarily just showing a killing machine of someone who hates women and is like torturing women. Exactly. And so when they met with Ellis, they kind of set out with goals specifically. Heron would focus on the structure of the story while Turner was going to focus on the dialogue of the movie. And the main points that they wanted to extrapolate from the book were maintaining the tone and having the ability to slide back and forth between comedy and horror and social satire with basically no smooth transition. Really abrupt. It's really abrupt in the book, and it's very abrupt in the film, and it's meant to throw you off. It adds to this disorienting feel when you go from a completely absurd situation of talking about what you're eating at a restaurant or obsessing over the minute details of a business card. And then in the very next scene, you know, Patrick Bateman's murdering a homeless man and his dog. And the the humor in this movie, I, I think when I first saw this, you know, again, I said I didn't like it. I didn't get any people were like, oh, this movie's hilarious. Tonality in the movie was something that I struggled with a lot when I first kind of got in the movies. It's like, oh, it's like shifting tones. And this in the very beginning of like him weirdly graphically describing like his morning routine, you know, and doing the peeling the facing off and then cutting to this like outrageously peppy, like I'm walking on sunshine yeah. song and him wearing headphones and like, you're seeing all the city streets and it almost feels like the opening of like a romantic comedy. Yeah. The way that they <laughs> like show the difference between, you know, him in his house versus like him out in the world or two, wildly different people you know and he's like now that he's going out to the world he's putting on this like happy facade even though he's like demented and sad and angry on the inside and that comes across really funny to me now when I watch it I don't think I really got the tone I was just like why are they putting this like happy music on here you know it's like this is supposed to be a horror movie the shift of having Patrick Bateman's soundtrack being pop music when he's a killer it's just it sounds almost like it won't work but it's so brilliant and simple and shows how superficial he is and i love that you bring up that specific uh scene of his morning routine that is one of uh, uh for, for 
a man who's so physically fit and, and, you know, like a statue, like perfect looking, his morning routine is supremely unmasculine. The way that he talks about it is extremely dorky. Um, just everything about it is in direct contrast to what we know him to be or what we're going to know him to be. And so then laying, walking on sunshine happening directly after that is just like your mind's trying yeah. to wrap around who is this guy and what? how am I supposed to feel right now? Right away in the beginning, it comes off humorous because it's just like if someone was describing their morning routine to you in a normal conversation, an average person who like is just trying to get up and especially if they have kids or like pets or anything, it's just like chaos. You know, it's not this like very precision. Everything's going to happen exactly the same before they go out the door is it's like, what time does this guy get up like four hours before his yeah. shift starts? You're either a psychotic or you're like Steve Carell and the 40 yeah. year old virgin, yeah. you know? The other things that Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner wanted to make sure were taken from the book is bringing to life 80s culture. And Turner said that was all Mary Heron. She's the one that added the legitimacy um, to that and did a fantastic job with it. Um, I mean, I certainly wasn't uh, old enough to know this, this life and culture, but from what I, uh, from someone who does, uh, I don't know, look back on that decade with some nostalgia. Um, and from Mary Heron coming from a background of, of, I mean, she was a longtime writer for punk magazines. Like she'd been around the block. She knew what she was talking about. So 80s culture and making sure to highlight the irony, the comic irony, and also uh, Bateman's foolishness and ridiculousness and making sure to not make him look cool, you yeah. know? And it's, and it's funny too, that so many people who uh, maybe feel that they identify with Patrick Bateman and Gwen Turner loves to bring this up that when, when guys come up to her and are like, Oh man, you wrote American psycho. Like I am Patrick Bateman. I love when she talks about this and she's like, really? Like, so does that mean you're a serial killer or you're just a really big nerd? Like, what are you trying to say exactly? Um, because Patrick Bateman is not cool. He might describe his morning routine and it might be really impressive, but there's a certain, uh, there's a certain mentality that's going on there. That's like not okay. When, uh, kind of doubling back really quickly to eighties culture, we talked a lot about this in our, I shot Andy Warhol episode where Mary Heron handled a period piece and same way with this movie. I love that it's a period piece of the eighties and it's very specific to like you know, Wall Street, New York, but nowhere in the movie does someone like bust out like a Rubik's Cube and someone's like, oh, what is that? And it's like, oh, it's this new toy. Every, yeah. It's all the, you know what I mean? They don't do yeah. any of that kind of like yeah. goofy stuff. It's like, it's just like, this is a very specific era and time and place and everything looks dated because they're making sure that like the clothes look right and the cars look right. And to me, when, you know, watching it, it looks like a scene out of Wall Street or like, working girl, something that took place yeah. that was so on point of that yes. era at that moment in time. But this feels like it could, it looks like a scene out of those movies, but doesn't have all those like nostalgic winks at the camera. And I do love, I, and don't get me wrong. I like a lot of movies that have those nostalgic winks, but in a particular movie like this, I love that Heron, both in I Shot Andy Warhol and in American Psycho, just says, let's not do any of that stuff. You know, and sure, there's 
the music is like on point and it's like specific to that era and it's talked about. But again, even that, and we'll get to the music. There's even a that, reason. Yeah. yeah, it's purposeful to the script and to the character and to the story. Yeah, exactly. We got to talk about a little kerfluffle, a little snag, a little hitch in the get along um, that happened during the casting of American Psycho. As we already said, Johnny Depp was the first actor that had his teeth in this and wanted the role of Patrick Bateman. And after meeting with so many actors, the only one really that spoke to Mary Heron, um, the only one who didn't talk about the psychology of Patrick Bateman was Christian Bale. And he was like a breath of fresh air to her. And so pretty much as soon as they met and realized that they were on the same page, Mary hired him. At this point in Christian Bale's career, he was not, I mean, he'd certainly been in a fair, I mean, more than a handful of films, um, but the studio wasn't really enthused about having him spearhead this movie. I'll give you one guess. Uh, let's see, what are we in right now? 97, 98? What was like the biggest movie of the time around then, Justin? Remember? Just a little movie called Titanic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With a little actor uh, named Leonardo DiCaprio. And I don't know that you can really just quantify here how big of a juggernaut DiCaprio was coming off of Titanic. I mean, Titanic became, at that moment in time, the highest grossing film of all time, and still up there. And Was Romeo and Juliet before that? Romeo and Juliet was before Titanic. He was he was coming up. He was with coming that. up. Like I mean, he had already been nominated for Boyce yeah. and Gilbert Grape, and people knew who he was. But this movie, he was the reason teens were going back to the cinema for uh, Titanic. So he was the number one commodity of like a white hot rising star in Hollywood. I think I moment. was forced to go see Titanic at least three times, if not four times. I unforcibly went twice. <laughs> Unforceably, well, the studio wanted Leo DiCaprio for this, and they were prepared to pay him anywhere between ten to twenty million for this film on a budget of six million for the production of the movie. So pay him pretty much more than double to do this movie. And they thought, you know, he's the hottest actor at the time. Uh, we're going to offer it to him regardless of what you think, Mary Heron. And she was not on board with the idea. She thought, one, he was too young, too poetic, and coming off of a movie like Titanic, like your fan base is is not what we're looking for with American Psycho. And as much as I love DiCaprio, I honestly, like, at that time, I can't, I, I totally could see that he, he had the chops to play Patrick Bateman, no problem, but physically, even if he worked out hardcore, he still looked really young at that point, and... Christian Bale kind of has more of a he, he even if Christian Bale was like in his early 20s he could he, he looks older and has a more mature face and DiCaprio still looked like a little kid like in the late 90s he, he really even to the early 2000s yeah. when he was trying to play more adult roles I, I think that his young face was fighting against him yeah the physicality did not match up and again no shade on DiCaprio as an actor I think he's incredible but it just, it, he would have looked like a kid in dad's clothes trying to wear one of Bateman's suits. But the studio went ahead and sent him the script anyway. 
thinking if he rejects it, he rejects it. Okay, fine, moving on. But if he accepts it, let's move forward. And to everyone's surprise, he was all in about doing it. As soon as he agrees to do the film, Lionsgate announces at the 98 Cannes Film Festival that he's on board, the movie's moving forward, and um, there are some people that think it's a complete anomaly that DiCaprio would attach himself to this kind of raucous frenzy that this movie is, uh, you know, it's being called vile and just all of these things. It's hard to believe that DiCaprio is going to attach himself to this. But, I mean, maybe he was even thinking, I need to change my image. You know, who knows? I can see why he would want to do it, not to mention a giant payday, too. So DiCaprio agrees, and with that, uh, Mary Heron leaves the project. It was either she was fired or she leaves. I mean, who knows really what it was. It was a mutual disagreement over casting. And this time span goes from like April to August. It's a good chunk of time. The producers are not stoked about this studio decision. They really encourage the studio to not screw over Mary Heron because she's put so much work into this. And should anything go wrong, like you got to pay her because we might need her back. And if you guys are pushing forward with this, not that we're not supportive, but we can't, we can't screw her over. Lionsgate pretty much gives DiCaprio full control over hiring a director and gives him a list. Mary Heron's name is not on that, but Scorsese and Kubrick, um, those names are, and Oliver Stone, which is who DiCaprio decides to go with. And as the rumor goes, as there was a reading with Oliver Stone and DiCaprio, I think Cameron Diaz was on board to do this too. They did a read through and Leo just started having problems with what was happening in the script and what are all of these changes. Um, the story started to kind of morph into um, more of just a Jekyll and Hyde type of straightforward, simple story and not at all what had been imagined by Ellis, Heron, and Turner. From what I read, this read-through didn't go very well, but there were all of these kind of different reworkings of the script. But by the end of it, um, DiCaprio wasn't happy and just kind of kept having problems with it. The other little part that I heard about this was the whole time this is going on, I heard that Christian Bale was just kind of sitting back and thinking there's no way that DiCaprio is going to move forward with this and he was rejecting jobs. Who knows if that's true, but that was one of the rumors I heard and that's a lot to bank on in a kind of four month time span. But it turns out he was right and DiCaprio chose to bail on the project and with him bailing, so did Oliver Stone. So the studios left with their original project and they need to get Mary Heron back. With Leo out, Heron and Bale are back in, except the studio is still like, you know, Mary, can you, somebody else besides Christian Bale, we're just still not on board with him. What about uh, Ewan McGregor? We can, we can bank on Ewan McGregor. Let's go with him. The other rumor I heard was that Christian Bale personally asked Ewan McGregor, dude, please don't do this. I've been like waiting and waiting, you know, please back off. And who knows, maybe there's some uh, um, broship, some friendship there. Who knows? But Ewan McGregor did beg off of the role. Yeah, I can't even picture Ewan McGregor doing this role. Don't just look at it, Christy. <laughs> well, with that said, I think it's time we move on to the cast. We know we have Christian Bale on board. Let's find out who else we've got in this cast. We'll be right back. You like Huey Lewis on the news? Uh, they're okay. 
Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Hey, Albert Yes, Alan? Why are there copies of the style section all over the place? Do you, do you have a dog? A little chow or something? <laughs> no, Alan. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87, Huey released this for their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics, but they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends, it's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Christian Bale, early in his career, I mean, I think a lot of people remember him from Empire of the Sun. He was also in Disney's Newsies. He was in the movie Swing Kids. And Christian Bale's been known to be a method actor. And I think in this movie, from what I read, he tried to stay in character for the most part. Not to the extent of, like, only answering if people, you know, had people call him Patrick. But, like, kind of shied away from people. Like, didn't hang out in between takes with the cast and just kind of focused on his character and really went through like a huge physical transformation like getting his body kind of sculpted so that you know it really comes across on the screen that this guy like focuses 100 percent on himself trying to make his body look perfect and his face and skin look perfect and it's a big part of the, i think the script and the story you know and they, it comes up several times in the movie and that's you know that takes a lot of discipline i mean i know like when you're an actor you have you know, trainer and nutritionist and all that stuff, and you've got money, but it's still, regardless, even if you have all that money, and it's takes extreme dis- discipline to get yourself to, to get your body to look like Christian Bale's does in American Psycho. He really was just had a, a flawless body for this film, um, and even though he was really into doing method acting, Gwen Turner said at one point he said to her, "I'm really fucking tired of eating chicken breasts." I think he was done with uh, having to maintain that physicality. I don't know if someone exaggerated it or not, but I heard it was like a pretty quick turnaround of like two or three weeks that he turned himself into that. And he's been known to do that physical transformation in so many movies. Even I think he went on some interview and the interviewers didn't recognize it was Christian Bale because he had put on a ton of weight for a role. I think I'm not, I can't remember what movie it was, but I mean, in the interview, it doesn't even look like him. And he seemed to embrace this role a lot. He was, in fact, anyone that told him that playing Patrick Bateman was career suicide made him embrace it more and made him want to do it. He wasn't afraid of playing a character who was going to offend people um, or just being someone that was going to be so despicable. There's so many films. I mean, you, you mentioned some like at the beginning of his career. I think my first movie I remember him in was Little Women. He's like so sweet in that. And then Velvet Goldmine. It's not like he was a nobody, but 
I mean, I guess you could get kind of typecast after a movie like this, but really, I bet Christian Bale just trusted his own talent to know that he could kind of exceed beyond that. I could see someone like him not really caring. When the way that Christian Bale plays this character, though it's a despicable character and he goes all the way with it, you know, he doesn't, you know, like you said, wasn't concerned with any kind of controversy that may be attached to him. He's like, I'm going to go for it. But he does layer the character enough and he allows there to be a fascination. Even though we don't like this character, we're fascinated by him. We're fascinated by the way his mind works. We're fascinated by his obsessions. And it's interesting to the audience. I was thinking about this the other night, like a movie like Raging Bull, where, you know, a similar actor, Robert De Niro, who's known for doing Method. We've talked about several movies with him. Raging Bull is also a really despicable character, though I I find that movie to be flawless in its execution. It's beautifully shot, brilliantly acted by De Niro. It's hard for me to watch that movie because his character isn't fascinating to me. It's played in such a... There's such a brutality to his character, and it's a tough watch. I don't have... It's not tough for me to watch American Psycho, and I think a lot of it is Christian Bale allowed that character to be heinous but at the same time left him open for to draw you in be kind of fascinated by his weird desires and also like his obsession with like self-control and self-embodiment he opens up that character and it makes it kind of sucks you in and you want to know about what he's thinking about behind closed doors and what he's up to even though some of it's like very vicious and very terrible and i know this can be said for any lead actor who's very into the script and anybody who has written a script that theoretically everybody's really putting all of their efforts into this and really feeling it. But for some reason with American Psycho, with the writing and with his dedication to this role, it just felt like everybody was in tune with who this character was supposed to be. And for Patrick Bateman, who is someone who is very superficial, he has a lot of layers. Yes, he's he's a loser that's like obsessed with what others think about him and wanting recognition and wanting to be popular, wanting to stand out. He's also someone that's searching for a way to, to fill a void in his life and who hates himself and and hates everything around him and wants to take everyone down that's around him and feels almost impotent in his loss of identity. He's really interchangeable uh, with his friends. That's why numerous people don't even call him Patrick Bateman. They think he's somebody else. He's someone who is existing but is not who you see on the outside. So For a character that is superficial and almost not there, like what he says in the beginning of the movie, that he's just simply not there, is very true. And I think Bale really had a grasp on this role, just in the same way that Mary Heron and Gwen Turner did, just being really in tune with it. Well, the last thing I'll say about Bale and his performance in this movie is I do find it to be an incredibly challenging performance here because every scene this character's compartmentalizing. We see that beat for beat throughout the entire movie, whether he's getting grilled by the detective or whether he's about to lose it on the dry cleaning people and then has to immediately readjust himself to speak with a woman that he knows who really likes him that walks in the door to his obsession with 
the people that work in his office and, you know, his obsession with himself. Every single scene is a little bit played a little bit differently because he's trying to adjust to fit in or to present some version of himself. It's not just a straightforward performance. It's a very nuanced performance. And I don't think I appreciated it back in the day, but like watching this movie over and over again these last few weeks is wild. Just, you know, it is a movie where I can just sit down and I'm just going to like watch this performance. There's a millimicron part in that um, dry cleaning scene where the friend comes in and he has to talk to her like he actually cares that, you know, they should hang out sometime and he's being really personable. As soon as they part ways after he's given her his dry cleaning to deal with, as soon as he turns around, that smile just fades. And that that's something that maybe an actor wouldn't even think about that you think okay my scene's just gonna get cut off like right here this is where it ends but Bale's still going with it and he like he goes right back to the psycho that he is before we move on really quick we didn't mention that um apparently Christian Bale can control how he sweats he can control when he sweats and that's what led to Mary Heron calling him a robo actor which was noticed first in the business card scene because every take he would start sweating in the same part. I mean, who Bizarre. who can do that? Yeah, I've heard of crying on cue, but sweating, sweating? on cue. Sweating? Strange. I mean, maybe that anxiety and that freaking out was really like, maybe he was really, that's what being a method actor is. Yeah. All right, who should we move on to next? It's such an ensemble cast. It's such an ensemble cast. So many great actors. Uh, I'll just jump right into Willem Dafoe. Always does so much, no matter how little his role is, leaves his presence on screen. I love that in this movie, I honestly like, don't know where the hell he's coming from. <laughs> I can't, and I think that that's supposed to, I think we are supposed to be seeing Patrick Bateman's impression of this guy, you know, cause he's kind of confused of, he can't tell if he's like leading the conversation or being led. And Willem Dafoe does this perfectly where he can get like real personable, but then he can also kind of be aloof. And he does all this in a matter of like, two or three minutes in this like quick conversation that they're having. I feel like that's a scene that could have been totally just a real generic kind of scene, but then you, you give that role to Willem Dafoe and, and, and then this just like quick exchange of information becomes like wildly entertaining and fascinating. I think you're totally right about that. Um, it feels like his character of detective Kimball plays on Bateman's paranoia and anxieties and that that is Bateman's experience of him. I think another thing that you're talking about too is Mary Heron's direction of Willem Dafoe and asking him to, each time he's on camera, do his scene three different ways. The first being like he knows Bateman's guilty. Second, that he's clueless. Like he has no idea of Bateman, doesn't even think he's involved. And the other one is if he's unsure. For me, after I learned that, rewatching it um, was like, I see all three of those. And the purpose of that was having three options when Mary Heron's editing this together and piecing it together. It's meant for us to feel as disoriented as Patrick Bateman is. And it is completely effective. And which is why Willem Dafoe's character, you don't know, you don't know what he's thinking. You don't know where he's coming from. It's not because it's disjointed. It's because you're being directed in Patrick Bateman's yeah. like insane paranoia and he doesn't know what uh, that's why he's sweating constantly when he's around Willem Dafoe and also two very small parts with actors that really make the most of it 
is Patrick Bateman's bros, played by Josh Lucas <laughs> and Justin Thoreau. They are so gross in this movie. I mean, everything that they say is done with like a smirk, disdain in their voice, you know, and that they're above everything else. And the anyone who's like even gets to be in the room or have a conversation with them should be lucky. And it's all about excess and like wealth and I think they really represent this world that Patrick Bateman's trying to be a part of, even though he like despises it at the same time. And he like hates these people. He, he hates himself for wanting to be such a part of it for this universe to be sold of, of how these guys operate and how they talk. You you need a good team of actors, even though the parts are small to like really sell this. And man, both of those guys and Justin Thoreau and Josh Lucas went, have went on to do, some leading men type stuff, but really great support here. And just every time they're on screen, the way that they're so obsessed with like what each other thinks of the other and sort of almost like you can see how they're always constantly sizing each other up, you know, scene for scene. They're shallow and competitive. And to me, they remind me of middle school girls in their hanging out. I mean, a hell of a lot more racist and and terrible people. But, uh, I mean, it, it's perfect. It's like those are the friends that Patrick Bateman, and I say friends with quotations, those are the people he would hang out with. But if we want to move on to the... Ultimate douchebag? Yeah, the ultimate douchebag <laughs> of this movie. In appropriately a, cast. Yeah, appropriately <laughs> cast by Jared Leto. And, man, why is Jared Leto such an easy guy for people to hate, you know? <laughs> Playing the role he does in this movie does him no favors. Because he was Jordan Catalano, that's why. Yeah, and he. De- but the thing is, is like he's perf. He does this part yeah. perfectly. Just the the smugness that he has in this movie is you just want to slap the shit out of him. And I mean, you're by the time we get to his death scene, I mean, you're, you're practically just wanting to applaud Christian Bale for killing this guy. It's really the only time that Bateman is giddy. Like, he's so excited. He I'm Going off about Huey Lewis in the news, like, he's so excited. He's performing. He can barely keep himself together um, preparing to kill Paul Allen, who's shit-faced drunk and has no idea why he's sitting in a blank apartment on newspapers and thinks it's because of a dog. No, dude. Jared Leto always does um, a really great job of playing a douchebag, so congratulations on, on yet another role of yeah. nailing it. For me, um, not just because I'm a woman, but the female roles in American Psycho certainly stand out. The biggest one for me is the role of Christy, played by Kara Seymour. Mary Heron knew Seymour from being a stage actress, and this part was basically written for her. For the part of Christy, there's so much emotion that goes in to uh, her role without having any dialogue. Christy's a prostitute who Bateman picks up, and the first time, I mean, it, it's kind of amazing that he doesn't end up killing her the first time, along with uh, Krista Sutton, who plays Sabrina. And it's somewhat surprising. I still don't know why um, he doesn't kill them, even though he certainly beats the shit out of them. And we don't see that. Thankfully, one of the smartest moves of this film is that it is controlled in its violence. It shows us like four, I believe it's four, scenes of violence and then a lot alluding to violence that happened and I think that that makes it more effective especially by the second time that we see Christy come back around and the second time with Bale pulling up as she's working a corner and uh, offering to pick her up it's such a painful scene of her thinking 
I know this guy. I've seen this guy before. I know guys like this. And even though I'm going to have corrective surgery for what he did to me before, he's offering me a shit ton of money to do this again. The second time around with Christy, which is a scene that intersects with Guinevere Turner's Elizabeth character. I don't know. Christy just really gets to me. She's the, because she's the only one out of all of these women who sees Bateman for what he is. And I think that that's like the most gut wrenching aspect. And she also has the most horror movie style death too. It's a really, it's a horrible scene to watch actually. This part of the movie to me taps into the most, as far as like what we've read and learned about with serial killers, 70% if you're like listening to true crime or serial killers, it's a man preying on the position that sex workers are in. There's a lot of disrespect in their line of work and you see that on Christie's face. You know, you see that on her face of like, this guy has a limo and he's got money and he's got champagne. She's seen it all before. She's seen guys richer than him. She's not impressed by any of it. She just hopes that this guy's not going to kill her tonight. You know, that's like the only thing that's, am I going to be safe at the end of the night? Or like, how is this night going to go? It's a sense of like disdain and fear and, and worry and pain and man, she really expresses that. Cause, and we catch all these glimpses. He's so unaware of her emotions, but mm-hmm. the audience sees it. And, and you see her try to fake, you know, she waves to the camera at one point. There's a couple moments where she, you know, she's... During the sex scene. Yeah, during the, the sex scene. She's, you know, like, I'm going to enjoy this moment. Hopefully I'm safe. But for the most part, we see that pain on her face. It's, a, it's a, again, like these small parts, you know, but leave a lasting impression. And then when we see her character the second time and we know that something terrible happened, we didn't actually see the violence on screen, but she knows that this probably will, you know, she's risking her life. She's gambling on this time around with him for sure. And the first time around she was placating to him. She was maybe playing up a little bit more than she would normally because it was an awkward situation and the other sex worker was wasn't wasn't really getting what was going on and kind of wanted to dip out but by the second time with Guinevere Turner's Elizabeth Christy I mean she's not saying anything she's just not even interacting and in that scene it is it's amazing the Uh, I mean, one of the themes throughout this is everyone's disconnection and not reading each other. Christy's the only one that knows what Bateman's potential is in here. Elizabeth is completely, all she's thinking about is where can we get drugs and I'm boozed up and whatever. And Bateman's thinking about drugging them both. So for me, Christy is probably the most important uh, female character in in this film. I agree. The role of his secretary, played by Chloe Seveny. I was surprised to hear that Guinevere Turner said she thought that was weird casting, that, you know, she thinks Chloe Seveny is kind of otherworldly. They were looking for someone like super plain, someone who's like obsessed with her boss and like, you know, is catering to his every whim and has this like very innocent feel to her. But I, I totally think that plays on screen. Chloe Seveny, she's definitely a char- an actor who can change the way she looks and she can look like a gorgeous runway model but then can also like look like someone who's from a small town and like a very basic office person or something i don't know i i think she's great in this movie and at the same time is the only character that you kind of feel any kind of like humanity or Mm -hmm. you know humanity for like you really hope and and i love that 
her character does survive and she's the only one that's like given any kind of a chance in this film and is still even at that point totally naive i mean she we do see a scene where she finds bateman's drawings and kind of starts connecting dots but up until that point she's so innocent and so naive to a point of like you're just like please don't hurt this character we've kind of grown to love her the only non-despicable character in this movie full of just people that are saying the worst stuff and doing the worst stuff she should completely fear patrick bateman but she's so naive and so wrapped up in um thinking that he's wonderful that she doesn't see it and the only thing that does prevent her from being murdered with a nail gun um is a phone call from patrick bateman's girlfriend played by reese witherspoon which completely destroys bateman's mood um the thrill is gone of trying to kill gene and um he feels very it's it's almost like a sobering moment for him that the introduction of evelyn talking over his answering machine just kills the moment now evelyn reese witherspoon she's nothing but a i don't know a performance of a girlfriend or a fiance their relationship is pretty much a joke it's almost like they both hate each other um but reese witherspoon does a does a great job uh with this role i don't think that playing um a character like that as someone that's foreign you know to to her historically but she does a wonderful job at it and is is someone that you in her very short scenes that she has um you really don't like her you're you're almost like patrick get rid of her like she sucks and he's uh, they both are terrible <laughs> together the role does her no favors it's no. just like her character's like droning on about minutia she plays it to such a I think a high level of annoyance you're reminded that wow everybody that Patrick surrounds himself with are just as bad as he is you know minus they're not out killing people but they're you know saying terrible things thinking terrible things they could care less about anybody but themselves which again I think was the point of this us seeing this world and seeing this character in the dichotomy of like a person that we think is really really bad and what we really think is a good person there's like a this moral compass here that's swinging and as an audience member you know sometimes you know it's almost like the anti-villain or something you know where as an audience member you're I, I i should feel a certain way about a bad person a certain way about a good person but now i don't know what to feel because these people aren't doing as terrible things as patrick bateman but i kind of would rather hang out with him you know yeah. <laughs> than spend an hour with Evelyn or you know one of his friends oh can we talk about Samantha Mathis poor Courtney I mean I've never seen a woman play tragic and comedy at the in the same way um as this poor um just pilled out soul she gives Sharon Stone some competition <laughs> for acting like pilled out in the scene and like totally obliterated but like going along for the ride and like trying to hold some sort of conversation while so almost passing out uh I didn't even recognize that it was Samantha Mathis as first she just almost looks like they found someone who was like super doped I'm just like yes. can you say these lines real quick <laughs> if I don't see you before Easter have a good one so good god if I could bring it back real quickly to Guinevere Turner 
co-writer of this uh, screenplay and brief appearance as Elizabeth and also pulling double duty as a face-down naked body that Christy trips over in the film. Guinevere Turner, uh, I think Mary Heron said it best, that it's almost like she got pulled from some type of light social comedy and is inserted into this movie. Her character says that she's a Sarah Lawrence grad and Guinevere Turner did go to Sarah Lawrence. And so she said that she was imitating a lot of girls that she went to school with. I do think that out of all of the women in this film, um, one, all of them are varied personalities in direct contrast to the men. You ever notice that? Like all the dudes are completely the same and all of the women are completely different. And Gwen Turner's being the one I think that stands out the most and who, correct me if I'm wrong, is the only non-blonde? Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Who's the one that knows Bateman already, that they're friends or drug buddies or whatever they are, but that she's not really afraid of Bateman. She doesn't see him as a predator, that's for sure, because as soon as she makes fun of him for liking Whitney Houston, as Heron said, she pretty much signs her death warrant. I love that she has a little part in this movie. I mean, I've been a Gwen Turner fan since Go Fish and Watermelon Woman. Big fan of her over here. Also a little wink to the audience that anyone who's, yeah, probably not just gay, probably if you're a lesbian, you get a good chuckle out of her saying, Patrick, I'm not a lesbian because Gwen Turner is gay in real life. She also has a new book out called When the World Didn't End. I just started it. Pretty decent. I had no idea that she grew up in a cult, and I'm kind of addicted to it and can't wait to finish it. So if you're a Gwen Turner fan out there, go check it out. That's wild. Yeah. And Justin, speaking of gayness, do you have any opinions on Matt Ross, who played Lewis Carruthers? Carruthers. What a name. That's like (laughs) such a rich guy name. I think he's great in this movie. Every scene that he's in is him sort of falling over Bateman and Bateman is oblivious to it because he just kind of like in his mind is used to people kind of catering to him. And, you know, when we finally do get to a scene that the character comes on to Bateman in the bathroom while Bateman is planning on killing him, like (laughs) hands around his neck and he turns around and like takes it, you know, as a Patrick, you know, giving him a sign that to me is the scene that plays out like one of the funnier scenes in the movie. And it Bateman gets so flustered. I mean, normally he's like totally in control, but then kind of runs out of the restaurant and he's washing his hands with is, gloves on. He's washing his hands <laughs> with gloves on. And I think again, like written in there to show sort of some of the homophobia within his scene. There's nothing that gets tiring to me about seeing Mr. Carruthers on screen. It's just, he's such a stereotype, but he's uh, just the only one. And of course, he's the one that's dating Samantha Mathis, who's pilled out of her mind and has no idea that she's with a gay man. Yeah. So let's move on to the reception of American Psycho. American Psycho premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, which at the time, you know, it's like you just think about Sundance at that point, you know, was still a little more indie. You know, this was kind of touted as an indie film when it came out, even though it had a pretty decent budget and all the actors in it were already kind of like moving their way up, you know, had been in Hollywood films. It didn't really make a huge splash. I mean, it didn't bomb by any means. It made, I think, around like $35 million at the box office, but was really uh, critically acclaimed. Most people citing Christian Bale's performance 
as being um, something to look for, but also the tonality of the movie, kind of its blend of like horror and comedy and social commentary, being like a very intelligent film, even though it was like a little bit controversial and shocking at times. Slowly over the course of the last 20 or so years has become, you know, a classic film of the genre of mixing, again, horror and comedy and commentary. I don't really consider this a horror movie, to be honest. In any way, I think that it's, uh, to me, it plays more of like a satire, comedy, social commentary type movie with elements of horror worked in. But in my mind, even though with the title and him being a serial killer, this is like the least, I would say like horror to me is like tiny smidgen of the subgenre that it would be encapsulated in. Yeah, I would agree with that. It seems to me, though, that this movie wasn't fully realized until it feels like 10 or 15 years ago. Because when it came out, there was still that stigma that was attached to the book. And I think above anything, Christian Bale's performance was hailed. And like that was the thing um, that people talked about. But I think overall, I still think the movie was not completely misunderstood, but like how you and I, like how we interpreted the ending differently. And I think that that's always the thing um, with this film that people are left with is either the ending made them mad or they felt like they understood it or it was this, but everyone has different opinions. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you have people that are debating the ending of your movie, people are still talking about it. Um, But it doesn't seem to me Like, it was fully realized, like, how good it was until, like, 15 years ago. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, too, like, it, age has done this movie well because when this movie came out, even though it's satirizing being wealthy and chasing after success, I still think in 2000 those weren't things that were considered negative. You know I mean? Now, in the last 20 years, being that wealthy is not necessarily... A positive thing in people's minds it's frowned upon it's like why do you know one person shouldn't hoard all this wealth and this movie in some ways you know where it was ahead of its time in showing people that were like wealthy but didn't care about anybody else and even the scene with the homeless man is like probably the roughest scene to watch in the movie and now when you watch it it's like really rough and so I think the movie was in some ways like needed to age into society's view of wealth and capitalism and now when you watch it i think it the satire skews much sharper and the movie plays differently than it did when it was released you know 20 something years ago yes i agree with you justin and i and i hope that people watch it differently and also think about our world now in 2023 and take a different look at american psycho and maybe see you know if anything um, I forget what interview it was um, where someone, I'm not trying to get political or anything, but um, I forget who it was that, that said uh, that likened American Psycho to when Donald Trump said I could stand in the middle of Times Square and shoot somebody in the middle of the street and no one would do anything about it. The interesting thing about that comparison is that it, I mean, it pretty much is the same thing. Um, except for you have someone who really doesn't care. And I mean, both, both people don't care, but Bateman is desperate to be caught. Like he kind of wants, it's, it's because he wants to be recognized. He wants, 
he wants validation he craves it he needs it from people um and the other is like just a complete disregard for humanity and and if they were to get caught they're just gonna deny that it ever happened bateman he confesses three times in this movie to all of the murders that he's done and i guess that's something that we should probably talk about is the finale of the movie yeah i wanted to spend a little bit of time on that before we get to our picks of the week I hated the ending in this movie. I mean, I didn't like this movie when it came out, but I hated the ending. And I think that was met the same way with a lot of audience members when this movie first came out, where you're intrigued by Bale's performance, but you're like, God, I don't like this whole, like, was was it all part of his mind, you know, or did he actually kill people? And to be honest, it's not clear in the movie. And we'll get to what the director actually said was the ending. It is open-ended, and you don't necessarily get the closure that you want after seeing him witness all of these things. But at the same time, on further watches, on rewatches of this movie, I notice little things that are placed here and there where we're seeing how he interprets the things that he did. And of course they're more grandiose and interesting than just, you know, a heinous kill here or there. There's going to be a crazy chainsaw sequence where it's this big, huge production because he, in his mind, he's like the best person at doing this stuff. And then also his influence of serial killers and he's got Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, I mean, there's a link to his own imagination and how he would commit these crimes. And he follows how these serial killers have done their crimes. You know, he's very interested in serial killers and their kills and how they operate. And he brings it up multiple times in the movie. So you see his, how he fantasizes about being as big as these serial killers are. And I think I missed a lot of that, you know, when I first saw this movie and, the more times I watch it, the more you get those little clues here and there about he's killing people. He really wants to do this. This isn't just a fascination he has right before bed. And to both Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner, I don't think they thought it was really ambiguous to them. And I could see how this would happen um, because, I mean, you and I have been rewatching this and rewatching this. I think when you're so close to it, and the story that you've made, you're like, yeah, of course he's killing these people. It might be a little ambiguous at the end, but to you, you're already thinking, well, yeah, he did. There's n- there's no question about it. But that is one regret that Mary Heron had. Uh, the, I mean, she said she'd called it a failing. She's like, I don't know what I could have done to make it more obvious because it was obvious to us, but that it had any type of ambiguity that wasn't really what they were going for and it certainly wasn't to have this movie be all in his head because I don't remember if it was Mary Heron or Gwen Turner that said um, both of them dislike it was all a dream type movies so if there was any question out there anyone who's listening this movie was not intended to be that and yeah uh, upon many rewatches If you go back and you think about this film being from Patrick Bateman's point of view, um, it makes sense. Well, one, when did he become a marksman and can like run, never runs out of bullets like in the in the giant finale scene. And when he does shoot uh, a cop car, um, it just blows up. There's so many things that don't make sense. Yeah. In the in the way that 
it just wouldn't happen because nobody hears the chainsaw like it'd be so loud she's screaming yeah she's beating on doors like there are things that don't make sense and they probably in reality not patrick's reality um happened very differently but was he actually killing these people yes and I think we had the same discussion when we talked about Taxi Driver because that was another ending where people were like, well, did he do all that stuff? Did he kill those people or was it all in his head? You know, and this is just his fascination. And that one, I think, is even more ambiguous than American Psycho because, well, I don't know. Now that I'm thinking about it, they're like really similar films because we get the internal narration of the lead character and he's struggling with his desire to do something and be oh well, in my mind i'm like these are pretty similar movies yeah yeah it's like if travis bickle had a trust fund before we close out here um i mentioned before that that bateman confesses three times um which all play into his desperation to be recognized the first one is over the phone when he's calling his attorney and you might notice that he confesses to a hell of a lot more murders than what we see in the film that's because uh, Gwen Turner wrote this scene specifically to include all of the deaths from the book. So in a sense, it adds to, you know, do we think that Patrick is lying? Do we think that he, you know, is it all a dream? Is it something that he's making up? Um, but in actuality, it's that we haven't been with Patrick this entire time. He's been killing people in between scenes, you know, that we haven't seen or before or after. The second kind of confession scene, it's not really a confession, but um, is when he walks into Paul Allen's apartment, which has now been repainted and is being sold by this real estate agent. And he walks in with a mask on, expecting to find all of these dead bodies that he's left behind. He, in essence, walks into and is shocked by not finding this. This real estate agent catches him in a lie immediately. And if this was the scene of a murder, this weird guy shows up, is lying to you about how he found out that this apartment was for sale. This, in essence, is another way of of saying, we both understand what's happening here right now, and I'm going to excuse myself from the situation. But everyone is so self-involved that she's not going to do anything about it because that's going to compromise her sale. He just needs to get the hell out of Dodge. And then the third which is the confession is then going to his attorney and saying, didn't you get my message? You know, and is like what, you know, like panicky and his attorney one doesn't know who he is playing back into the theme of all of these guys being interchangeable. I think that we keep circling back to how pathetic Patrick Bateman is, um, that he can still be a killer and still exist in this world is, uh, it just wraps up so nicely and then at the very end, we're left at the same exact position as we were when the movie opened. Yeah. It's kind of awesome. And it's also even more terrifying that he's gotten away with all of these murders and will continue to get away with all of these murders. But he's now gone from a psychopath to a complete psychotic state. So yeah. who knows? Maybe he'll jump off of a bridge, really. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Him jumping off of a bridge might have been too bleak of an ending to an already very bleak movie yeah but i do like that there's this uncertainty on where bateman's going to go next yeah i like the open-endedness of it the the questioning of what's next yeah well let's stop there we'll come back for some final thoughts on american psycho but let's get to our serial killer summer picks of the week Lindsay, you chose a movie that 
I saw once uh, when I was in college. Oh, really? And yeah, someone loaned me a VHS tape that had Deranged and I think what what else was on it might have been Cannibal Holocaust and like one other movie. Just a VHS tape of dubbed really bizarre, creepy movies from the 70s. But what can you tell me about Deranged? Well, first off, for anyone who grew up with Home Alone as a solid movie staple in your household and always thought, that old man Marley next door, no matter how nice he is to Kevin, that man just ain't right. Well, you might need to watch 1974's Deranged. Admittedly, I didn't choose this movie because the star is Robert's Blossom of Home Alone, but instead I chose Deranged because of the writer and co-director Alan Ormsby. He's someone who's had a hand in a couple of films that I love, including my favorite underground zombie cult film, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. I saw Ormsby's name on this and that it loosely dealt with Ed Gein-inspired macabre and wanted to give it a chance. Directors Ormsby and Jeff Gillian must have known how to pinch pennies because this $200,000 budget looks pretty darn great. Shots were thoughtfully composed and each scene had intention behind it. I'd expect a low-budget 70s movie to drag on at some points, but it just doesn't happen with too much in Deranged. It's legitimately strange and also captivating to watch Robert's Blossom play this grown man, Ezra Cobb, stunted by his mother who raised him to be a misogynist, only for Ezra to steadily spiral and lose touch with reality after his mother dies. Naturally, after mother dies, Ezra digs up her corpse, props her up in bed, at the kitchen table, and eventually gets around to digging up other corpses to replace mother's more advanced areas of bodily decay. Being Ed Gein-inspired, the story does take place in a rural town. Ezra lives on a farm, and people think he's strange, but he has, you know, quote, normal relationships with townsfolk, even if they think he's a bit touched. No one has any idea that he's not only digging up bodies, but will eventually escalate to killing live people. Storytelling-wise, Deranged uses a narrator, but not in the sense of having a voiceover, like a Dateline host introducing the next segment after the commercial, like it's a documentary. But this narrator host, played by a familiar face character actor, Leslie Carlson, often steps into the frame with the action happening around him. He guides us through Ezra's compulsory evolution and sets the stage for what he will do next. It breaks the wall for the audience, and it's really unique for the horror genre. The tonality stays fairly constant throughout. Moments of dialogue make me laugh, but not because it's bad in a good way. A laugh because people can say such awful things or make vulgar comments with no regard. It's recognizable to everyday life and adds to the believability of this very human story of ghastly proportions. One recurring comment that sticks out centers around the notion that only overweight women can be trusted, a pervasive life lesson taught to Ezra by his now-deceased mother. Ezra's a simple man, but this film doesn't make fun of him. It pokes at how ridiculously clueless others can be when a disturbed person is sitting straight in front of them, giving them clues into his own depravity, something we also see in American Psycho. For instance, a police officer pulling over Ezra with his long-dead mother in the passenger seat covered with a blanket, and the cop believes some story about rotting meat in Ezra's truck. Or another instance where Ezra's friend is explaining to him what an obituary is, and Ezra responds, You mean, I can just find out where someone's been freshly buried and go right to him? His straightforward questions and comments are believed to just be, you know, joshing around, not giant waving red flags. Ezra's delusions can sometimes be humorous, too, especially when talking about his decaying mother and saying, I'm just going to have to put you back together. This is a peculiar psychological horror movie, but don't mistake the levity for anything other than a flashbulb moment. 
This is about an emotionally stunted man affected by his overbearing, terrible mother who devolves into psychopathy of delusion, lack of empathy, and experimentation. Definitely some psycho vibes happening here, but there's enough of a differentiation between those two movies that Deranged is its own distinctive story. And setting it further apart from Psycho is the involvement of makeup and effects at the hands of the writer Alan Ormsby and special effects man Tom Savini. It's not over-the-top squirting blood, you know, type of thing. Savini's attention to detail combined with thoughtful shot composition, it makes all of the scenes involving the gore, bruises, slashes, and gashes look smartly executed. There's a little bit of perverse humor through the special effects too, like a little too much time spent with Ezra slowly removing the top of a corpse's skull, then scooping the brain out with a spoon. I have to admit, it's moments like this that are straight up for horror hounds. The set and effects queens also paid close attention to the Gein-inspired idea of taxidermy art, rotting food, and other grotesque ways to decorate the set of Ezra's house. And quick side note, Deranged came out in February 74, and Texas Chainsaw came out in October of that year, and the crossovers with inspiration are identical at times, which is really fun to see if you like Texas Chainsaw. And if that doesn't convince you to seek out the film, I'm going on record that Robert's Blossom, Old Man Marley, who lived next to Kevin McAllister in Home Alone, man, I have a new respect for this guy. He's never overdoing his portrayal, and there's nothing extra creepy. Ezra's just a simple farm boy. Roberts plays his pathology with the utmost earnest believability. And before I close out, one more Easter egg to watch out for is Marion Waldman playing Maureen Selby, the only woman Ezra's mom could trust, you know, because she's a bigger woman. It, it's something that happens throughout the movie and it's just like, it just makes you want to hit your head every time. Well, some of you horror lovers might recognize her as the house mother from the original Black Christmas, where her performance is pretty unforgettable as well. And Leslie Carlson, who I already mentioned as the narrator, he also plays the phone operator in Black Christmas. Of course, Black Christmas, which came out the same year as Deranged, the casting crossover makes some sense because Black Christmas's director was Bob Clark, and the writer and co-director for Deranged is Alan Ormsby. They were creative partners for many years, including Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, Death Dream, among many other things. Don't be surprised if you're left feeling uneasy after a few scenes, along with Psycho and Texas Chainsaw. I'd like to throw in a little bit of happy birthday to me in here, as there is one scene with um, a victim of Ezra's Mary the Bartender, who easily has one of the most memorable segments in the film. Producer and one-time concert promoter Tom Carr fronted the money for Deranged because he'd always had a fascination with Ed Gein, but it wouldn't be until two decades later that this film would be unearthed and picked up by a subsidiary of MGM for distribution. If this film sounds like it's up your serial killer alley, make sure to check it out. This is the story of Ezra Cobbs, the Butcher of Woodside, and it should definitely not be missed. Yeah, I'd really like to revisit this one. Uh, the only thing I remember about it is it being like super low budget and yeah. because it was in sort of a pseudo documentary style, it kind of made it a little bit more creepy. It It is. I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was, actually. Is that wildly available? Not that I could find. I found it, uh, I think it had Spanish subtitles on YouTube. I ask because the movie I chose is uh, fairly difficult to find and it's not available on YouTube. I uh, had to uh, track down a VHS off of eBay. Man, sometimes YouTube is the saving grace that someone's put up. You know, it, maybe it's reversed or something like that, or you'd have to watch it in a particular way. But yeah, if you're just trying to watch the movie, sometimes it saves it. All right, Justin, I would love to hear about your serial killer pick of the week. So my pick is a sort of a hidden 
William Friedkin movie. Once we started going down this path of doing serial killer movies for our picks of the week, uh, I've found an interview with him and he actually said this was maybe the lowest point in his career. And he said, though some people are fans of this movie, he thinks it's not a very good movie of his. And it does have a very TV movie quality about it. It's not a bad film per se, and it's kind of an interesting take on a serial killer movie. Friedkin wrote, produced, and directed it. The movie is loosely based off of serial killer uh, Richard Chase. The movie is about a serial killer named Charles Reese who goes on a rampage. He massacres parts of two different families in this movie. It's a little bit gory. He uh, disgustingly uh, drinks their blood. That's what kind of sets this serial killer apart. He's captured in the majority of the movie where I think takes a different take on the serial killer genre movie is that I would say 40%, maybe half of this movie takes place in the courtroom where they're trying to prove whether or not he's insane, whether or not he was cognitive of the fact that he knew what he was doing and massacred these families out of just wanting to, you know, kill. But then there's also a a defense of him saying, no, he, you know, he has these delusions of an entity telling him to commit these crimes, telling him that he needs to drink the blood of his victims and that they'll go on to live in a better place. It really does a good job of showing both sides. The prosecuting attorney is played by Michael Bean, who we've talked about several times. He's giving more of a straight-laced performance here. Usually he plays like a villain or an action movie type character, but here he's dressed in a suit, prosecuting the serial killer who's on trial, trying to prove that, you know, he's not insane, that he knew what he was doing. He's also struggling because he talks to one of the family members of the victim, and this father whose wife was murdered by the serial killer is now left with raising his young son alone, and Michael Bean's character had recently lost his daughter, who was really, really young. She was like six or seven. So he has a connection to this case, and also Michael Bean's character doesn't believe in the death penalty, but here he's kind of changing his tune and pushing for the death penalty because of the grisly nature of this case. And this is something that we've seen time and time again in the news where They've put somebody to death, and usually you'll hear the judge or one of the attorneys say, you know, this is one of the worst cases that's ever come across my desk. Um, I recently read a case in Missouri where they recently gave someone the death penalty in Missouri of someone who is a child killer. And this guy, in the he's been on death row for 20 years, but since then he's developed some mental illness and he doesn't understand why he's going to be put to death. But at the same time... The governor who could pardon pardon him said, you know, I can't stop this thing. This guy committed a grisly crime. So this movie does a really good job of showing both sides of whether or not someone should be charged with being guilty of a crime because of reasons of insanity. But when the crime is so heinous and the fact that he committed multiple multiple crimes in this movie, it's a little bit more um, dramatic because he gets away from... Uh, the police and ends up like killing two police officers and then they capture him again and finally are like, yeah, this guy needs to get the uh, death penalty. I won't spoil the ending if you do find this movie, whether or not how they find him guilty or not or whether or not they give him the death penalty. Um, They're actually uh, two separate endings. So if you look up any information on this movie, they played both sides of the token as far as like him getting the death penalty. But the actual ending of this movie is pretty chilling. 
uh, what happens. So it's worth checking out if you can track it down. Currently, I've only been able to find this movie aside from a trailer on YouTube. I've only been able to find the VHS, but I didn't pay very much for it on eBay and there's still available copies of VHS on eBay for sale. I know that uh, the movie itself, I looked it up to see what the deal was about its release and it was uh, produced by Dino De Laurentiis. He went bankrupt in the late 80s so this movie was actually filmed in like 1986 and it didn't come out till 92 or 93 because um, I saw that the release date was 90s but when you're watching it, you're like man this looks like a total 80s movie. So Miramax bought it and then didn't really give it a very big release. As far as I know, it's only been released on DVD in like Poland and one other country. It's hard to find. I mean, it's not a movie that I would like go out of your way to drop a big chunk of change trying to track it down. But if you like Friedkin and you're a completist, you want to see someone's filmography and you want to see a little bit different take on a serial killer movie and you like courtroom drama type movies, this might be the type of serial killer movie for you. I think what makes this movie distinctly different than a lot of serial killer movies and makes it more scary is the person that plays the serial killer, Alex MacArthur, is not a familiar face. Um, you might recognize him from a few things. He's definitely had a career in television, and he's had some bit parts of movies, including uh, your pick of the week from last month, Kiss the Girls. But And he does a really good job in this movie. He's got very intense eyes showing rage, but then also showing this like calm, uh, calculated, menacing vibe. And again, because you, this is an actor that you don't, you can't say, oh, well, that's Kevin Spacey. Oh, this is Brad Pitt. That, you know, you, it's just like you're seeing somebody that you don't know. And it makes it 10 times creepier to me. This sounds right up my alley. I think I would really like this. I mean, in a sick twisted sort of way serial killer sort of way and finally she has a very small part but worth shouting out uh, deborah van valkenberg who played mercy in the warriors it was nice to see her she has a small role playing michael bean's wife in rampage oh that's cool she's great in the warriors i'm sure yeah. she'd be wonderful in this well those are our picks of the week deranged and rampage wow just those two titles alone <laughs> are worth uh yeah <laughs> investigating here's your murray moment Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. About the closest character Bill Murray has ever come to playing Patrick Bateman is Frank Cross from the Christmas classic Scrooged. The man is much more known for his roles of guys who reject conformity, who aren't psychotic, devoid of feelings, and for the most part, aren't trying to be a negative force in the world. And this is also true for Bill, the person. His values seem to be nowhere near that of Bateman's main life objectives. And this stark difference brought me to a more uplifting Murray moment than I was expecting. Bateman describes himself as having all of the characteristics of a human being, flesh, blood, skin, hair, but not a single clear identifiable emotion except for greed and disgust. I mean, wow, what a personal statement. 
Bateman takes no personal responsibility for his actions during the height of his psychosis, and it isn't until his desire for recognition of his murderous actions and impulses goes unrecognized does he finally admit his guilt. But this doesn't mean that he has any shred of remorse or any human emotion other than his obsessive and egotistical need to look cool for others, to make an impression, any impression, even murderous. If people are monstrous, Bill said in a 2018 interview, it comes back. Eventually it comes around. We get justice, we just don't get it when we want it. And as an audience, our justice for bearing witness to Bateman's actions is that he's doomed to repeat his expected pathetic ways of life, never fully caring for his well-being, let alone anyone else. He'll never become a better person. If you can take care of yourself, Bill continued in the interview, and then maybe can try to take care of someone else, that's sort of how you're supposed to live. We've sort of gotten used to someone looking out for us, and I don't think any other person is necessarily going to be counted on to look out for us. Bateman's self-worth is so skewed that this idea might not even compute to him. He doesn't have anyone looking out for him, but it's not also what he outwardly desires, nor anyone in the company of men that he regularly keeps, you know, his supposed closest friends. Bill went on to say that some people spend so much energy, quote, trying to destroy the other guy, not working together, but to humble and humiliate the others so that they can't have success. If you're not some sort of common good and you're only servicing your own partisan alliance, you're part of what's destructive. You're destroying something. And Bateman's self-destruction at this film's conclusion, then his ultimate stare of nothingness straight into the camera, tells us that he'll never break free from his desire to conform, to belong. He'll always be afraid, too self-involved to be introspective, and only a superficial connection to his own self, a performance. Certainly being present, living in the moment, doing good by yourself and unto others is the moral of this Murray moment. But maybe on Bateman's deathbed, like Billy's Carl Spackler and Caddyshack said, maybe Bateman will receive total consciousness. But by that time, just like in the movie, or even a real-life Bateman, would be too far gone to do anything about it. If you're ever looking for a movie list where Bill plays non-conformist characters, I don't know, just see... Meatballs, Where the Buffalo Roam, Caddyshack, Stripes, Tootsie, Ghostbusters, most prominently The Razor's Edge, Quick Change, Groundhog Day. I mean, there's a trend in the man's life stemming from early childhood, but that's another Murray moment. Can you imagine Bill Murray playing a serial killer type villainous character? I would like to see that. I just don't think he'd ever do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was listening to an interview of Gillian Anderson the other day and her saying she's trying to like not do period pieces and she's like, I want to play a psycho. And I'm like, I would love to see you play a psycho. Yeah. Can't, can you? But I, yeah, I would love to see Bill Murray do that too. He'll never do it. No. No. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, before we close things out, we have a few final thoughts on American Psycho. I wanted to talk a little bit about the music that's represented in this movie, uh, mainly the popular contemporary artists that are showcased by Bateman in the movie itself. When he's trying to show off for people or... Yeah. In the book, you know, it's almost like full-on music reviews These that he's breaking down of these artists. I mean, they do a little bit of it in the movie. You know, I get the satire of this. The year that this movie is supposed to take place, I was like eight or nine. So I unironically loved Whitney Houston, Phil Collins, and Huey Lewis, and continue to do so. I, these are all three artists that are on playlists, and I listen to them 
probably have listened to all three of these artists within the last week. Yes. And so when I'm watching the movie, I get it at any era, you know, there's like a top artist that people are going to take shots at because it's going to be what the most mainstream safe contemporary music that's available. And so I think, you know, if this movie was showcasing today's, time period Patrick Bateman would be talking about like Taylor Swift or some you know somebody like that and so it's that's the only scenes of the movie that are kind of funny to me because he's kind of going on about this now do I think that deeply of some of these artists I mean I appreciate their talents but when I'm listening to them they're you what they're trying to say in the themes and you don't think about the pleasures of conformity I don't I don't (laughs) It is kind of funny the way that the movie portrays that, but I do think that it does help show that place in time, you know, like specifically him. And then also too, kind of showing his deflection when he's talking to Willem Dafoe. When Willem Dafoe says he picked up the new four album and then uh, Bateman kind of like, he says, do you like Huey Lewis? Yeah. And he's like, no, you know, and he kind of gets like racist about it. He says they're too black sounding. That's right. Yeah. And so it's just the showcase of these particular artists. And because Huey Lewis is just so effortlessly safe of an artist, I mean, I celebrate his entire catalog. <laughs> and I, like you, I, I'm with you on this as far as liking all of those three. Um, and it was really difficult to get all of these songs, too, that are used in the film because of the film's content. There had already been you know, whispers of what this movie was going to be about. And there were brands that were concerned about getting involved um, in in artists, but they did pay some high prices um, in order to get the songs that were from the novel and just felt that any other options just wouldn't work the same. And there's a really great, I think it was Funny or Die that put this out, but it's on YouTube. I was watching it the other night. There's a great little clip of the scene where Patrick Bateman kills Paul Allen uh, they redo the scene, but it's uh, Huey Lewis and uh, Weird Al Yankovic, and they kind of play the whole scene out. And I think that the scene that they redid is funnier than the scene oh, in the yeah. actual movie. Huey Lewis still claims that he hasn't seen American Psycho. I could believe it. You think? Yeah. I mean, he's probably seen that scene. Yeah, I'm sure. Someone showed it to him. Yeah. Well, along with that music, the composer behind this entire film was John Cale, who was in the Velvet Underground, and he also scored Mary Heron's first film, I Shot Andy Warhol. You can definitely tell where his handiwork comes into play when the haunting chorus of, of um, female voices, female singing, are woven all throughout some of the creepier parts that illustrate when Bateman is headed towards like some type of... like psychotic moment when he's going to kill a woman or when right when right when that's building up and those tracks were linked with some animal noises and some weird dissonant screams so the handiwork of john kale right there to accompany those upbeat pop tracks that we hear it was a nice uh, balance between the two nothing's better though than that moment right when walking on sunshine hits though yeah lastly i'll say there is a sequel to this called american psycho 2 which um, after looking at reviews and kind of watching the trailer, I can't say I pulled the trigger on it. Usually I try to watch any sequels that are involved in a movie that we're talking about, but I didn't actually get that done. Though it, from what I've read about it, I don't think I missed much. And as far as I've read, too, it has like zero to do with um, the original film. And I think it also has zero to do with Mila Kunis. I think it was just kind of 
maybe maybe it just wasn't a movie that needed to have a sequel. Yeah. Though if uh, if we are wrong about this and someone has seen it and you feel passionately about it, please let us know if it's something that we should uh, further investigate. I mean, I'm I'm down for it yeah. anytime. Well, we'll close things out there. Thanks so much for listening to our Serial Killer Summer. If serial killers aren't your thing, we are uh, wrapping this entire thing up and going into a comedy, a werewolf comedy. Mm, it's true. And that is 1985's Teen Wolf. And what a great time to talk about that movie. After all these grim serial killer movies, it's been kind of nice. I've already lined up my stack of Michael J. Fox movie DVDs trying to figure out, you know, which order I want to watch them in. Um, Oh, that's precious. But I'm totally excited to sit and watch Teen Wolf multiple times, even that sequel. You know, it's been since it was on TV. I have not seen that, but I love Jason Bateman. I can't wait to revisit it. So that's coming up next month. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you.